Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. Since the new millennium, we're really fully in the post-Cold War era of unipolar hegemonic power of the United States and of globalization, of global corporations. And in this fourth world war, um, in this era of globalization, there are multiple sites of resistance against that central dominating power of capital. Um, And particularly, we see those clashes and those sites of resistance in indigenous communities. Today on American Indian Airwaves, we go to Chiapas, Mexico, where the Zapatista National Liberation Army calls for the mobilization against all capitalist wars, including Russia's occupation of Ukraine, and we'll speak with longtime indigenous advocate and ally Richard Stoller Schulk on the recent action in Chiapas, Mexico, as over 20,000 members of the EZLN march against all wars throughout Mother Earth. That and indigenous Los Angeles, all that and more here on American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone through in the black of the night, you can hear, you can hear, the whisper in the valley, mm-hmm. and you know, when come a cunny blows to the bar who drum, it's the warriors who are marching, Today on American Indian Airwaves, in the first segment of today's program, we go to Chiapas, Mexico, where on March 13th, members of the Zapatista National Liberation Army, or the EZLN, issued a statement this past March 13th calling for the mobilization against all capitalist wars. Three days later, on March 16th, Over 20,000 members of the EZLN demonstrated in six Chiapas cities in Mexico to protest all the wars on Mother Earth and to show their support and solidarity for indigenous peoples throughout the region of Ukraine, Crimea, and Russia, as well as the people of Ukraine who are currently resisting a Russian invasion. Today on American Indian Airwaves, executive producer of American Indian Airwaves, Marcus Lopez, and myself speak with Richard Stoller Schulk, who's a retired professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University. He's also a community activist involved with the School of Chiapas, which is an organization of grassroots activists and communities working to support the autonomous indigenous Zapatista communities of Chiapas, Mexico. We start our interview with a brief background on the EZLN and then transition to the significance and the importance of the EZLN statement calling for a mobilization globally against all capitalist wars, including Mother Earth, 
and the need for peace and the protection of Mother Earth. This is Richard Stoller Schulk and the EZLN Statement Against All Wars. I want to ask you, first of all, before we get into the specific aspects of this, what the Zapatistas have announced, but want to give the listeners a little brief introduction of the Zapatistas, if some of the listeners are not aware of that organization or of that movement. Sure. Um, the Zapatistas are an indigenous-based movement in southeast Mexico, in the state of Chiapas, who rose up. Uh, in public rebellion on January 1st of 1994. Uh, They had actually been organizing quietly for a decade before then. Um, And what they were rebelling against is the uh, really the global capitalist model that has destroyed the livelihood and hopes and even identities of many peoples around the world, um, and also the bad governments that accept and facilitate that kind of rule of global capital. Um, So while it was a very localized rebellion in some ways in one small corner of Mexico that many people had never heard of, it was also very global in scope and implications. And the model of organizing that the Zapatistas adopted and even their model of rebellion was so different from other modes that it really has captured a lot of imagination. They're not about militarily trying to seize power of the state, but rather trying to empower people from below uh, at the community level um, and build upward from the grassroots. Um, And uh, they also have concentrated on uh, developing a model of autonomy in their territories, in the indigenous communities, primarily in Chiapas, uh, meaning self-government and self-sufficiency and ability to really make local decisions in a way that is participatory and empowering. So it's a kind of radical democratic model. Um, It's against neoliberal globalization, against kind of corrupt and repressive and centralized hierarchical governments. Um, And those aspects have been an inspiration for many struggles. Richard, we talked earlier in our conversations many years with Corey Dubin of Avriana Hirsch Dubin, one of our past colleagues that have uh, moved on to spirit world. Both Larry, I, and Fabiana talked to you earlier about the role of, especially when you talked about the patriarchal society and the Calacolas, about how, and I think this is an important point, uh, the role of women and how women has taken a lead within that effort in order to challenge the status quo. Talk about that for a second. Definitely. The Zapatistas have been really challenging and breaking a lot of molds. Um, And one of the ways in which they're doing that is by being inclusive in um, numerous different dimensions, including uh, gender awareness, sensitivity, and empowerment. So from the very beginning of the rebellion, one of the leading uh, figures in the rebellion was uh, Comandanta Ramona, a Tzotzil woman from the highlands of Chiapas. Um, And many women have gained an opportunity to participate in leadership roles in the Zapatista movement in ways that more traditional modes of politics have um, generally excluded women. Um, So uh, also in the first year of the rebellion, the Zapatistas passed a revolutionary law of women's rights in their territories, including very far-reaching recognition of rights and things that were in some ways 
um, different from some of the traditions even in indigenous communities, uh, and kind of encouraging those communities to uh, think outside the box and to think in a participatory way and to not be locked into old gender roles and stereotypes. Uh, so even something that um, sounds kind of commonplace, like the right of women to choose who they're going to marry, was included in that revolutionary law, and it was in that context revolutionary. Um, so those are a few um, examples, and that um, uh, model has continued. And so that's part of why women and also trans and LGBT and all kinds of other uh, people, the Zapatistas, have always referred to peoples of uh, diverse sexualities and in the uh, recent tour that they took, a kind of solidarity tour of Europe, they made sure to have uh, a gender balance and including a trans person on the, the delegation. So these are just a few examples. The Zapatistas teamed up with the National Indigenous Congress of Mexico uh, in the last presidential election to run a symbolic candidate who was a Nahua indigenous woman from the state of Jalisco as the presidential candidate. So in all these ways, um, but the most important are at the, the grassroots levels in the communities where women become health and education promoters in the Zapatista movement and uh, learn through doing the arts and skills of governance in a way that uh, more conventional politics would kind of require jumping through some hoops and playing uh, games of participation that have uh, excluded many marginalized groups, including women. Richard, I'm glad you mentioned because there's been a lot of discussions as far as the Zapatistas and the indigenous role. They are indigenous. That's what we're talking about. And within that, how would you explain the role of indigenous peoples in Mexico, a lot of it, a Mexican population because of their, their process of ignoring, and that's why the masks were so important. As soon as they put on their masks, they said their people recognize them if they have their indigenous face, they're not recognized. Exactly. It's something like with <laughs> North America, it's like when we talk about indigenous people or the different nations, and culturally and traditions, it seems like we're uh, we're going on deaf ears. What do you make of that? Um, um, especially when we're talking about this, is very much of indigenous struggle. Yes, in in North America, which was more the settler colonial model, uh, there was widespread, of course, genocide, extermination, and territorial displacement on a massive scale. Um, in many parts of Latin America, including Mexico, uh, the colonial project was more about subjugation in part by assimilating into disappearance um, the indigenous people as a people, which is another form of genocide, uh, wiping out, eliminating someone's identity as a collective unit and, and as a people. Um, so in Mexico, uh, perhaps 14% of the population are Indigenous, it's a fluid definition, but identify as indigenous, uh, conserve many indigenous traditions and live in indigenous communities, but a much higher percentage have some indigenous uh, ancestry and are mestizo of mixed biological ancestry. Um, but the, um, the Mexican state, uh, since independence, has tried to sort of paper over the distinctive identities of indigenous and for that matter, Afro-Mexican populations and kind of roll them into one uh, homogenized but not uh, mestizo-dominant 
official identity. Um, and so the, the Zapatistas have been struggling for a long time uh, and fighting what they call the war against oblivion, not being forgotten and not being erased. I think that's so important, uh, Richard. Thank you for saying that. Now, on March the 13th, the Zapatistas made a statement in which they called for the mobilization against all capitalist wars and that are being waged in the multiple corners of the planet. And these wars happen not just in Ukraine, but in Palestine, Kurdistan, Syria, Mapuche people, and all the ordinary peoples all over the world. Talk about that for us, the statement and sure. some of the other aspects of that statement. Sure. There are all kinds of wars. Um, and um, uh, just to give a little bit of historical background, uh, going back to 2001, uh, the early part of the millennium, um, the uh, Zapatista spokesperson who at the time went by the name of um, Subcommander Marcos uh, issued a, a really interesting statement in which he said, and he wasn't the first to say this, that we are finding ourselves now in the Fourth World War. And then he went on to explain that, you know, the conventional denominations are World War I and World War II. But he said, really, the Cold War could be considered World War III, and it was actually a war against peoples of the so-called Third World. Um, and since the new millennium, we're really fully in the post-Cold War era of unipolar hegemonic power of the United States and of globalization, of global corporations. And in this fourth world war, um, in this era of globalization, there are multiple sites of resistance against that central dominating power of capital. Um, and particularly, we see those clashes and those sites of resistance in indigenous communities, where indigenous people are fighting to defend territory, identity, um, and this world war is about uh, homogenization and destruction of the so-called enemy, which includes uh, people's uh, distinctive nations and cultures. So that's a little bit of the background of how the Zapatistas see conflicts. With this most recent uh, conflict in uh, Ukraine, uh, the Zapatistas have been unequivocal in denouncing this war, but also, as you pointed out, denouncing all wars, not just wars when they occur in areas where white people live, but also where people of colors live. Um, and so in a statement that the Zapatistas issued in the context of the Ukraine situation, uh, this statement was called, There Will Be No Scenery After the Battle. Ian, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Richard Stoller-Shulk, a retired professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University. We're speaking on the EZLN, or the Zapatista National Liberation Army's March 13, 2022 statement calling for a global mobilization against all capitalist wars and standing in solidarity with indigenous peoples globally, especially throughout the Ukraine-Crimea-Russian region. And now back to the interview. The uh, Zapatistas made it clear that they consider Russia to be an aggressor and that the, their actions are to be denounced, but they said that their interests of big capital on both sides of this conflict and the Zapatista position is to be anti-war, not to be on any one side. 
So just like to be opposed to the Iraq war, uh, Marcos pointed out, didn't mean that you were in favor of Saddam Hussein. Uh, to be opposed to this war doesn't mean that you're in favor of Vladimir Putin, quite the contrary. And in that uh, statement, the, the Zapatistas went on to point out that there are always invented rationales for, uh, for wars, the so-called denazification that Putin is using as his rationale for this war. But in the end, it's the civilians who suffer, the arms manufacturers who win, and it's a different kind of war, and it very much fits in this mold of what the Zapatistas refer to as uh, the Fourth World War and the multiple sites of resistance uh, of people struggling for freedom, justice, and democracy. Richard, the seats of the county governments of Mexico, the San Cristobal de las Casas, Jalón, Palenque, Ociengo, Las Margaritas, and Alta Mirano, where a lot of demonstrations took place, but on a communique that was uh, an article that was published in regards to the activities specifically around uh, in the Chapas uh, Palelo that we're talking about a the residents of Alta Mirano, which joined the Zapatistas that were not Zapatistas per se, but joined them. Talk yes. about that to our listeners and what's so significant about that. And yes, what's so significant about that? Sure. The Zapatistas have never been uh, exclusionary and they've never tried to be the vanguard and tell others how to struggle. Um, they have uh, risen up in rebellion against the circumstances that uh, indigenous people in southeast Mexico found themselves in, but also issued a broad invitation for others who are inspired by their principles to find a way to be in resistance, to struggle against injustice and oppression in their own spaces. So um, I mentioned before the uh, the sixth declaration of the Lacandon jungle in 2006 when the, after the Zapatistas, 2005-2006, uh, uh, in the lead-up to the Mexican uh, presidential election campaign, the Zapatistas launched what they called the other campaign, saying politics should not be about what political elites do in the capital city and the lies that they tell when they're on the campaign trail, um, but it should be about the actual concerns of ordinary people. And so they uh, inaugurated this sort of caravan all around the country, the Zapatistas did, from Chiapas all the way to Mexico City and other places, uh, inviting local communities to come forward and talk about what their struggles were and what parallels they saw with the Zapatista movement. So it was the beginning of kind of constructing networks of resistance. So there are many people who are not formerly part of the Zapatista movement or who aren't even in the state of Chiapas, um, but who are kind of affiliated in this network sort of way. And so I think that that's part of what we're seeing in Altamirano, where there has been local level political corruption, um, uh, violence, uh, violence against campesino and indigenous communities. Um, and so when the Zapatistas included Altamirano in their march against all wars, many people there said, hey, we've got a war going on here too. There were just, there have been attacks on 12 different communities in our municipality. Uh, there have been kidnappings of uh, campesinos, peasants, and indigenous people uh, from this uh, area. And it's all uh, connected in a way. 
Um, so I think we see a kind of congruence of struggles, and this is a continuation of the Zapatista model of building from the ground up rather than trying to impose uh, an organizing structure from above. You know, what's quoted there, Richard, uh, in this article uh, about the, the outrage of many women and mothers, and they stated, stop the wars of capitalism that murder and conquer the people of Ukraine for economic, political, and ideological interest. And then finances, wake up peoples in Mexico and the world, because one day, sooner or later, they are also going to wage unjust wars against us. We must organize. And I thought that was an appropriate statement, and I wanted to share it with the listeners, because of the fact that there's an indigenous populations within Ukraine. Um, could you talk about that for a second? And at the same time, um, there's some indigenous organizations that have been uh, creating the solidarity, you might say, with that indigenous population in Ukraine. No one talks about that. So why don't you educate us about that a little bit? I'm glad you brought that up. And Larry was also referring to the indigenous people in Ukraine and, and Russia. Um, the, the Zapatistas are against all empires and domination and erasure of nations and cultures. Um, and so that's why in this statement that they issued saying there will be no scenery after the battle, referring to Ukraine, um, they specifically said that they were already in contact with, through this uh, Sixth Commission, um, groups of people oppressed by their own government in both Ukraine and Russia. And so I would assume that those people in resistance include the indigenous people uh, in those territories. Um, so it was, again, kind of similar to uh, the other campaign and the outreach to other indigenous people. It was really the inspiration of the 1994 Zapatista Rebellion that led to the formation for the first time ever of a national indigenous Congress in Mexico, of the 60-plus indigenous nations um, in uh, the modern uh, borders of the, the state of Mexico. Um, and the, since then, the Zapatistas have teamed up with the CNI, the National Indigenous Congress, to form an indigenous governing council, a kind of proto-government for what an inclusive Mexico might look like, again, to kind of make the point, never again to Mexico without us, uh, us meaning, the, in this case, the indigenous peoples of Mexico and the world. Um, so it's very much an internationalist kind of outlook. Um, I remember early in the two years into the uh, rebellion, the Zapatistas kind of amazed everyone by announcing that they were going to call a meeting in the jungles, in the Lacandon jungle region of Chiapas, uh, against neoliberalism and for humanity. Uh, and that it was going to be an intergalactic encounter, as they described it. Uh, again, meaning uh, that they just don't recognize these borders that constrain and divide and oppress, and they wanted to really get to the root of the issue, um, the larger structures of injustice, um, and not be confined to the narrow definition of politics as who's running for election in some national government's political campaign. Richard, what we have talked about are many things and issues, especially against the war, and especially the catastrophic consequences of any war around the globe, where women and children around the globe have been affected by violence, military, industrial, and 
social violence against not only indigenous people but other peoples around the world. It just comes to a way of approaching the question of where the Zapatistas have posed the question of war and a very healthy point of view versus many of the North American indigenous nations have been very quiet and for a lot of obvious reasons, the backlash and all that goes with it and uh, and the politics of monies. I was wondering, and when we're talking, especially around Standing Rock and many indigenous people, there's issues of yeah. water and there's issues of um, the environment and these mega projects has been developed in North America, now in Mexico and within Abaya South and so on and so forth and around the world that has been displacing first peoples and indigenous peoples around the world, Africa, Asia, and even go down the line. Talk about the caravan for water and life, which came up. Um, and about now, this caravan for water and life, what does it have to do with war? How, how are the two related? Talk about that for us. Make that relationship alive. Sure. Um, I think there's definitely a connection to Standing Rock and to um, the common struggle to defend the planet against uh, corporate greed. Um, and indigenous peoples everywhere have been in the forefront of that struggle. Um, environmental defenders uh, are being assassinated throughout the Americas um, in uh, violent clashes. Um, and um, it, you know this violence, uh, the environmental violence, the structural violence that is leading to our devastation of our planet and our very possibility of, of survival collectively as, as humanity, it's very much connected to the more specific targeted violence criminalization of um, water and land and territorial defenders. Um, so we're seeing more and more organizational efforts uh, coming up from the grassroots and leading to, again, the sort of networking of people at different sites of resistance um, who are trying to uh, call attention to the fundamental uh, roots of this violence and the life-saving and life-affirming resistance that is happening everywhere. So it's in that context that there was an announcement uh, recently that uh, a, a caravan for water and life would be uh, traveling around uh, central and southern uh, Mexico in particular. Um, and it just left the state of Puebla yesterday, departing from the Bonafont uh, bottled water plant to draw attention to the absurdity um, of uh, stealing water from Mother Nature and selling it for a profit. Um, and the subtitle of this caravan, Caravan for Water and Life, is Peoples United Against Capitalist Dispossession. So that's the analysis that is shared by uh, many environmental defenders and indigenous peoples, that there's a commonality, a common thread in the uh, resistance. Um, and so this, um, this caravan has taken off and will be traveling for uh, a month, again, uniting different sites of struggle against the mega projects. It's not only water bottling plants. There are mining projects, um, hydroelectric and other uh, energy projects, 
that are on a massive scale, infrastructure projects such as the so-called um, Trans-Isthmian Corridor in the state of Oaxaca to the west of Chiapas. Um, and uh, this is devastation of the earth and of territories and of communities who are um, uh, who's, uh, have uh, since time immemorial lived in those lands. Um, but it's also the people who are living there are really defending the land and the territory for all of us because they're defending the earth from these self-destructive practices um, that the corporate capitalist model uh, has brought to us. Um, and something kind of similar, uh, another smaller scale uh, initiative is that was recently formed an alliance for self-determination and autonomy. Um, the initials in Spanish for this alliance are ALDEA. Um, and this is an alliance of indigenous and campesino peasant organizations and groups from 14 states in Mexico. They held a national kickoff assembly in Mexico City, and they're focusing also on uh, the devastating impact of these uh, large-scale corporate mega-projects, um, and also the related role of state-directed or state-condoned violence, which is the criminalization of anyone who stands in the way and who tries to defend the land, the water, the territory, the culture of, of the communities in the past of these destructive projects. So these are two examples, the caravan and this alliance um, of very recent but kind of a continuation of a tradition of resistance um, against uh, the destruction of our planet. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Richard Stoller Schulk, a retired professor of political science and a community activist involved with the School of Chiapas. We're speaking on the recent statement in action by the Zapatista National Liberation Army, or the EZLN, calling for a global or international mobilization against all capitalist wars. And now back to the interview here on American Indian Airwaves. Larry and I always talk about, and Fabiana talked about that, about the commodification and this term. It's a fancy term. And my understanding of it is basically just privatizing it, just for private hands and not for social consumptions or social ownership or common ownership of that. Now, this this commodification goes hand in hand with accumulation and that goes hand in hand with capitalist accumulation. And I think it's, I want to bring this up to you, Richard, because Larry and I always talk about this, but capitalism, when people bring that up, people saying, Oh, you're out there. Oh, you're, you know, this is, we can't talk about that. Oh, you know, it's, um, it's something politically, uh, it's not in our vocabulary because of the fact that we use other terms, uh, settler colonialism, um, um, and don't talk about what creates settler colonialism, empirism, imperialism, and so on and so forth, and words of that nature. But how would you wrap your hands around this question of, maybe it's too big of a question, but I'll attempt to ask you that is this notion of capitalism. A lot of people, especially the right wing and social media and all the different attitudes and strings of control that the 
transnational, transnational state and class operates, manipulates, and organizes. Talk about that for us. What is term? What, what is it? What can you, can you express that to our listeners, this notion of capitalism from your experience and your studies, please? Sure. Colonialism um, was a, a wave of global violence that is still having reverberations around the world. Um, and that was when capitalism as an increasingly global system was just getting established in the world. It, was in, it took slightly different forms and there were different political modalities for dominating people. But it was all about a small number of uh, people accumulating um, enormous amounts of wealth for themselves and turning that into power to be able to dominate and accumulate more wealth for themselves. Um, so, I mean, we can see it fundamentally as a model of greed, the interests of uh, a small number of private actors uh, enriching themselves at the expense of the general public good and, and public will. Um, and so that continues to go on. And the, the capitalist model, um, the yardstick for measuring the value of anything, uh, is the market. Um, and so things only have a value according to uh, what they can be sold for on the market in the capitalist paradigm. So that means that clean air and water, well, they have no value. Um, and indigenous rights and cultural protection, none of that would have a value in the capitalist model because there's no profit to be made. Quite the contrary, those things can stand in the way of accumulation of profit. So if you think about a forest, say the Amazon rainforest, the lungs of the world that produce much of the oxygen that we're breathing, the capitalists would say that all those trees have no value until they're cut down and sold. Uh, for lumber. <laughs> that's the, to put it starkly, that's the capitalist mentality. And of course, if everyone thinks like that, the entire world will be destroyed. It's a very self-destructive uh, ideology. Um, and um, you know, the, if you take it to its logical conclusion, um, it is kind of absurd. There was a um, a former chief economist for the World Bank named Lawrence Summers, uh, who, uh, when he was the chief economist, he once circulated a memorandum to the bank's corporate investors, um, and he said, look, let's just get down to brass tacks here, I'm paraphrasing. Um, he said, uh, you know, really, we should be dumping all the toxic waste in the world in the poorest communities. Uh, because the value of all the, you know, the lives in those communities measured in market terms by the wages that they might lose when they die and get sick, that value is lowest as measured by the market. So, you know, the market dictates that the most efficient way to do things is to produce in the most polluting possible way and just dump all the pollution in poor communities. Um, well, the, the memo got leaked. <laughs> so we now know kind of it's just one example of the inner workings and the logical conclusions of this way of thinking. It obviously flies in the face of many indigenous ways of knowing uh, about the value of Mother Earth, of Pachamama, of the uh, collective nature and of kind of the continuous cyclical nature of human beings and in our interaction with the, the planet. It's about a small number of people 
creating a structure that uh, is really antagonistic to the interests of the large numbers of people around the world and the planet itself. Thank you, Richard, for that. Because it, maybe it's an unfair question, but a question that you, I think it seems to me that uh, adequately summarizes it in a very complex situation. If you unravel it and see the, all the strings and the attachment of the global um, transnational interest and geopolitics of that and where a lot of people just don't really understand that and and secondly Richard are really scared about where we are at this point they're very scared of even using the term because of the fact that uh, of financial political and uh, um, backlash of that and so I really appreciate your answer and lastly Richard on this question of this war in Ukraine and the, uh, the marches against all wars. Uh, uh, has it been successful in Mexico and in the world from your vantage point? Well, um, it kind of reminds me of something that Gandhi once said when he was asked early in his uh, struggle, you know, how can you possibly hope to take on the British Empire, the largest empire in human history at the time that has, you know, achieved global scale, and you're doing this, you know, walking around in <laughs> raggedy clothes uh, across the subcontinent of India. And Gandhi replied, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Um, and so in that perspective, <laughs> at any given moment, <laughs> it might seem impossible. And we might ask ourselves, you know, how can we possibly make a difference? Um, but the Zapatistas have been... Uh, reminding us that they've been at it for 500 years. There are many struggles that have been going on for a very long period of time. Uh, there's incremental progress here and there, sometimes some breakthroughs, sometimes some setbacks. Um, but there is no alternative to a kind of life-affirming embracing of the struggle that is part of our collective existence. Um, so in that sense, maybe it's a kind of abstract answer um, but I would, the short answer, I would say, yes, it does make a difference. And that concludes the first segment of our program here on American Indian Airwaves. That was Marcus Lopez and myself speaking with Richard Stoller Schulk, a retired professor of political science and a community activist involved with the School of Chiapas based in Chiapas, Mexico. We were speaking on the Zapatista National Liberation Army's March 13th statement calling for the mobilization globally against all capitalist wars. That and more here on American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back.
the song Mother by Ulali here on American Indian Airwaves. In the final segment of today's program, we continue as part of our Urban Indigenous Los Angeles series. We turn inward to speak with a longtime community member that's part of the Native American Veterans Association. This is Marcus Lopez, executive producer of American Indian Airwaves, speaking with one of our community members regarding their perspective of the Russian invasion of Ukraine from an indigenous veteran perspective. Joe, um, what's your, first of all, why don't you give a little background of your of, of you? My uh, online name is JJ Citizen. My birth certificate name is Jose Jesus Acevedo Jr. I am a proud member of the Yaqui Nation, and I uh, was born in 1940. So you figure out what my age is today whenever you're hearing this. I've been with the Native American Veterans Association for many moons, also a member of Veterans for Peace, a national organization based out of St. Louis, and I'm a member of Disabled American Veterans because I am a disabled American vet. So uh, that's as far as my bona fides are concerned and uh, where I am today in this uh, world, war-torn world, after uh, the post-Trumpism has infected the political structure of this, uh, of D.C., what else? Uh, What do you think of right now um, of the war, the Russia against Ukraine, Yeah, and um, your point of view, how do you look at it? Well... The way I see it from all the uh, media reports I'm seeing that uh, Russia is, uh, and Putin, just they'll use those words uh, interchangeably when we're talking about uh, the oligarchy that has been running Russia for years. And their uh, incursion into uh, a sovereign nation uh, called, uh, I keep wanting to say Eureka. Ukraine. But it's Ukraine. <laughs> I don't know why Eureka keeps sticking in my mind. But, uh, yeah, they're uh, doing the same things that this U.S. government has done to Native peoples ever since the Europeans invaded uh, Turtle Island. So, as far as I'm concerned, there is no difference in uh, the fact that uh, Russia is uh, committing genocidal policies and against uh, another sovereign. You know, from what I understand, uh, the uh, Ukrainian people, a lot of them uh, speak Russian and are related to Russians on the other side of the border. And so, uh, you know, all that... uh, all that rhetoric that's running around right now across the media channels is, uh, you know, a reminder for those of us that are members of the Native communities, various and sundry tribes across uh, Turtle Island, that, uh, you know, you don't hear too much about, uh, you know, what the Native communities are doing for uh, awareness uh, 
cultural awareness about what's going on all over the planet because uh, governments, you know, if uh, somebody knocks on your door and uh, they say, I'm with the government and I'm here to help you, you know what? Don't believe them. <laughs> They're not here to help you. And uh, anybody with a member of a tribal organization will uh, attest to that truth from this Yaki elder that, uh, you know, has been handed down to me. Truths have been handed down from my elders. Uh, my Yaki mother and my Purepecha father's side of the family, all the elders that I grew up listening to, and I would... Uh, I would uh, talk, to, talk to young people that they uh, pay attention to their elders and uh, sit down in council if you uh, are able to do that. If not, get into a talking circle wherever they have them, as long as it's Native community members sitting around in a circle. And I would suggest that they use a talking stick. I would like to see a talking stick used in Congress and keep these idiots from uh, talking over another person that is sharing what's true for them. And, of course, there's nothing better than to interrupt somebody that is lying, and there is nothing, uh, you know, good about uh, interrupting somebody that's telling the truth. So I'm glad uh, the interviewer here is not interrupting me as I explain bond on the uh, uh, thoughts that come into my mind on a daily basis. And Joe, we talked about the na Native community and the military and about how last time I spoke with you over radio, you, you were with um, Kate, I think, and um, about True. restricting uh, uh, the recruitment. Yeah policies within educational institutions. Yeah. Why don't you talk about that my, for us and what does that mean to you? My involvement with uh, an organization known as uh, Truth in Recruiting uh, really struck to the heart of uh, issues that I have as a member of Veterans for Peace, reaching out to young people uh, all the time whenever we would table different uh, and sundry events locally here in Ventura. Now, that's where uh, the local chapter of Veterans for Peace 112 is located, and we have a website, and you can find out whatever uh, you want to about our local chapter, but we're a part of a national organization, veteransforpeace.org. So uh, I, uh, I was uh, asked to... Uh, sit in on uh, the organizing of uh, Truth and Recruitment from this uh, wonderful activist. Uh, Kate Connor. Col uh, Connell, yeah. The Kate Connell. Yes. And uh, she's one of those uh, members of Quaker. She's a member of the Quaker uh, belief system. And... Uh, she was wanting to, she got really riled up when she was told by her son, 
who was in the Santa Barbara Unified School District, was getting uh, uh, accosted by uh, members of the military recruiting uh, organizations. All of them, they come on the campus and they try to get the young people and uh, those that are uh, either 16, 17, or 18-year-old that don't know which hand to use to, uh, you know, pick their nose. But uh, they want to recruit them into finding out and choosing the military as a career when they get out. And uh, Kate took exception to them uh, having access as much as they had to the different campuses and the students on those campuses for uh, a period of time that uh, it took for her to get involved and bring in uh, various uh, peace activists in the, in the Santa Barbara area. And we, uh, we went forward with uh, Truth in Recruiting uh, events and uh, career days and things like that that they would do on, on uh, school campuses when uh, the recruiters would be there en masse to try and talk the kids into, uh, you know, signing up, giving their information. And that was the whole thing that really got Kate fired up about, uh, you know, giving the personal information, the military recruiters having personal information, and then uh, trying to get them uh, to enlist before they even get out of high school, before they graduate. So anyway, back in my days, when I was in high school, we used to have uh, ROTCs. And uh, they didn't influence me at all because I was too busy chasing girls and partying in high school. I mean, uh, doing my studies. So uh, I didn't pay any attention to ROTC people or anybody involved with the military until I got out of high school and had the misfortune and the misguided ideology that uh, I ought to join the Marine Corps and uh, go off and uh, protect all these young girls that I used to date in high school and make them uh, feel safe. But uh, I'll tell you a little story about being in the, in the Marine Corps once I enlisted and was shipped off to uh, the Marine Corps Recruit Depot in San Diego, we were all on the bus, and when the bus pulled in the MCRD, we all got off, and right away, our drill instructor, who was going to take us all under his wing, got out there and stood in front of this whole formation of uh, young former students, wannabe recruits for the Marines, and said, uh, you're not here because anybody made you come here. You enlisted. You volunteered to be a part of the greatest fighting force and blah, 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 and all that stuff. But I want to let you know something right here and now. Consider me your superior in all regards. You are nothing more than grass under my feet. And I am a powerful lawnmower. And so... In other words, your ass is grass and I'm the lawnmower. And with that, I found out at that moment, I made a big mistake at 18 years old. 
and I was destined to suffer for the next four years under the tutelage of uh, different and sundry uh, non-commissioned and commissioned officers in the United States Marine Corps. Of course, I was I was mistaken in the thinking that uh, you know this was the way for me to go. And the one thing they did teach me how to do relatively easy was to kill with one finger anybody that tried to kill me and got close enough. So I learned how to do all that. And I also learned that uh, you have a lot of uh, power in your uh, index finger. All it takes is seven and a half pounds of trigger pull to fire the uh, M1 carbine and any uh, firearm, any gun, any rifle, any killing weapon that you are handed. Joe, on, on that note, what would you say to our young people, boys and girls that are listening to you oh. and about the present situation as far as we know darn well that these the war machine doesn't take vacations. The war machine doesn't care who you are, what color you are. The war machine is the war machine and the system that goes with that, which their money, their budget is second to none. But given all that, the depth and the breadth of, of this military industrial complex, we know this it's in existence. Yeah. What do you say to the young people as far as their view of the military? Uh, what can you um, not instruct them, but advise them as far as the military, and especially when we have now the a rallying call for war, number one, and by various individuals, and number two, from these um, unhopeful events that's taking place in this, never before on the face of the earth has troops, regardless where they are, go into nuclear reactors and, and disrupt them and, and talking even about nuclear war. What do you say about that to our young people? Yeah, well, if I am uh, ever asked and honored to speak before young people, I like to uh, preface my comments with the uh, underlying fact that I am an elder of the uh, Yaqui uh, nation. And if I am speaking to uh, young people who are of... Uh, native ancestry or indigenous tribal members or whatever they are, I, uh, I would tell them to talk to their elders, their, uh, you know, parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, anybody that's still alive within their uh, family structure and find out uh, what they have to tell them about, you know, the war and the war effort, and the fact that uh, you are nothing more, I speak this to, from the truth that I, was true to me, I am nothing more than fodder, fodder for the uh, military-industrial complex, as uh, Dwight Eisenhower called it. The moment of silence is over. And that concludes part one of a two-part interview 
On our ongoing Urban Indigenous Los Angeles series, we were speaking with a longtime Indigenous community member, Native American rights activist, and a veteran and member of the Native American Veterans Associations. And that concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest, a special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Yulali, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studio at Burnt Swamp Studio in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host, Larry Smith. Until next time. While your freedom manifests on their graves And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains Silence is over.